What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Fast Track, formerly known as Pave the Way Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Helbeck, and on this show, you are gonna learn exactly how to be successful as a real estate investor. It doesn't matter if you're brand new or if you've done dozens and dozens of deals. This is a podcast you're gonna be able to listen to that's gonna give you actionable, specific advice on how to be successful within real estate investing. I'm gonna interview top-notch real estate investors each and every week, and there's also gonna be some content that is just gonna be me telling you exactly about my journey and how I've went from a broke kid starting out to a million-dollar real estate investor. So if you wanna learn how to be successful investing in real estate, this is the show to listen to, and I'm looking forward to being able to serve you at a high level. Hey, Tom, welcome back to the show. It's nice to have you on for part two, like three, four years later. Sounds good. I can't believe it's actually been that long. Yeah, it's been a while. I think you this probably was in 2019 we did the first show. So uh, a lot has happened since. Uh, the yep. market's gone up, market's gone down. So, uh, you know, the last time we had you on, we were really just talking about how you got in the business and what you were able to build up to that time. And on today's show, I want to cover how your large business up in Boston you know, was able to deal with the market shift that, you know, has been going on and is still kind of happening, at least in the Northeast. And then mm -hmm. we'll cover, you know, how you're able to build wealth through rental properties as well. So I guess if people aren't familiar with you, they didn't, let's say they didn't hear the first interview, just give everyone like kind of the 60 second backstory on you and what you have, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, like a lot of people that get involved in real estate investing, you know, I grew up without, you know, a ton of money or anything like that. And I was motivated to make money at a young age and, you know, did well in school, did everything that everybody told me to do. And then listened to that, you know, purple book while I was driving around in my car, the uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad audio cassette. Um, and it changed my life because I realized that, you know, I really didn't want to be an employee. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to start my own business. I knew I wanted to own rental real estate and grow a real estate business. And um, that launched me. And of course, you know, that was at this point, exactly 20 years ago, that was 2003. Yeah. And, and through a lot of hard work mistakes and, you know, just, you know, working my butt off with myself and my partners, you know, we, we started with, with nothing, no money, no advantages other than the fact that we were willing to work hard and, you know, I've fixed and flipped over 1,200 homes. We have a 350-person real estate brokerage that focuses on teaching real estate agents how to invest in real estate. And we've got um, a rental property portfolio and are now kind of at what I would call like the, you know, the, the best part, like kind of like what we really were in this for, which was to be completely like passive income and through the trials and tribulations of owning like smaller rental properties have now started to build apartment units, which we believe and have seen to be much, much more passive. And that's what my number one focus is now is just building apartment units in the greater Boston area for passive income. So ground up development, larger apartment buildings, like, you know, over 40 units, like what kind of unit mix are we looking at for this type of stuff up there? Yeah, we're shooting for 50 to 150 units, mostly ground up new construction. We will like we do we're doing a mill building conversion. So heavy construction uh, because of, you know, really the changes that have happened since the last time we talked uh, four years ago, which is just that the market is so tight that you need to kind of pull out all the stops in order to be profitable on rental real estate right now. One way to do that that we found is to do you know, big value add projects that most people can't take on. So because we have, you know, far less kind of competition, we're able to to build these things in nice communities and cash flow and have, you know, class A assets. Yeah, that's awesome. And then you're if you're building new, you know, all the, that CapEx stuff, you're not going to have a lot of capital expenditures for, you know, at least five years, at least, you know what I mean? So you and can, and that's, that's, that's the big, that's the big thing for us because we went through this period where like at, Boston is one of the oldest, you know, cities in America, right? Like it was yeah. people, people were here. My brother-in-law has a house that was built in like 1680, right? So like, that's how long yeah. people have been living here, you know, with houses. So uh, most of the rental uh, stock here in greater Boston, you know, New England really is a hundred years old. So yeah. We learned the hard way that that's problematic. And that's another one of the reasons why we've kind of pushed in that direction. 
Yeah, no, that's that makes especially yeah the Northeast. I always tell people like we have friends and you know the Arizona and what and they're like every house is like built in 1975. It's a track home. It's easy to comp it on Zillow. Yeah, and we get our business deals coming in, and it takes me a while to really pinpoint a property because if it was built in 1920, and I'm comparing that to you know a building that was built in 1950, like there's a real like you know that 1920 is old. That's over 100 years old. So. Yeah, that is a problem in the Northeast and there's buried oil tanks and many other things that people mm. out west don't really need to worry about. Um, so now my, I got a few questions on this, this strategy you're doing now to build these new apartment deals. Are you just, are you doing, are you looking for just vacant lots or are you infill? Like, how are you sourcing the dirt for that? Are you buying stuff, knocking it down and converting the land? Like, how are you got, cause it's tight up there. There's a lot of, uh, it's like Long Island. There's a lot of, a lot of houses in a pretty dense area up there. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that that we're doing, you know, strategically. The first thing is, for the most part, we're going into New Hampshire. Now, okay. for you know, okay. people in Boston, New Hampshire has kind of become like you know Boston North. It, especially with what's going on in the in the pandemic, um, where people can work from anywhere, New Hampshire has been a place where there's been a lot of migration. So if you don't need to buy a five hundred or six hundred or seven hundred thousand dollar condo in the city, you can start to go you know thirty five forty minutes north of Boston, fifty minutes north of Boston, be in New Hampshire, southern New Hampshire, and buy a nice house or rent a nice apartment for for far less, have some land. So we've taken that strategy both because there is land there that we can develop and also because the tenant landlord laws are are much more favorable again a lot of the stuff that i'm talking about That's is so like based, yeah it's based on kind of like mistakes that you know we've we've made right like we we went through the process of buying a lot of multifamilies in the boston area realizing what the tenant landlord laws were like realizing what 100 year old buildings were like so we keep it pretty simple with what we're doing. We're we're not out there trying to zone land. Like we're not we're not trying to be like land acquirers. We're buying ready to be built, permitted stuff that you know it, it's ready to go. It, it it pencils out, and it's funny because the way that the numbers work on some of these bigger deals, you know, somebody might do all of that. They might find the land. They may permit it, they may go through that whole process and they may make a million bucks selling that to us. But if you actually look at the numbers on like a $35 million project or a $40 million project, and then you pencil out, you know, what the interest cost is like, it's actually not even worth it for us to try to get into that business. It's it's more worth it for us to look and see, okay, there are these 10 or 15 deals available. What city do we want to be in? What type of deal do we want? Because we're holding on to these, you know, for the long haul. So it's not like a fix and flip deal where we're going to be in and out and we don't care about what the asset is. It's like we we care. So we want to be in the right areas, the right, you know, the right numbers, the right towns and stuff like that. So, so yeah, we're not doing a lot of work. The work on these is not necessarily like finding the deals, which is another, you know, difference between like the fix and flip element it's more raising the capital because these deals are, they require, you know, five, six, $7 million just to get from point A to point B and that's with bank financing. Yeah. That's just the gap between yeah. the, the the bridge. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's, you know, you're building new construction. So you're getting a construction loan and then you're going to have to refi out of that until permanent loan. Yeah. It's, it's just, you got to add a couple zeros to those fix and flip numbers and uh, you literally, know, yeah. Get some better investors. That's, it's smart you're going in New Hampshire because I run into the same thing in New York. I have rentals here and I just actually was at my other property and I'm getting ready to like Airbnb, like travel nurse kind of hybrid Airbnb thing. But uh, it took me two years to evict that tenant. And I was just in that thing today, testing out the office space. Um, so I'm think thinking in my head, I'm like, I got like four of these now. If I key and I have two more that I'm closing on, I'm like, do I really want to hold rentals in New York with all of this garbage? Because it, it really... Mm -hmm throws you for a loop because if it takes me at least six months to get someone out, that was with COVID. The other one, I mean, that's six months of no income and, and you know, you're pretty much at the mercy of the court. So I'm thinking about probably buying more rentals in different States because of that reason. You mentioned that Boston's probably horrendous to do evictions into. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really just unfortunate because all it does, and this is the unintended consequences of kind of like, you know, laws is that 
it only helps people that have really deep pockets, yes. right? It knocks out all of the small mom and pop landlords. Because if you're a mom and pop landlord that barely is able to buy that property and it's cash flowing a few hundred bucks a month, and then you don't get paid for a year, you're selling that property or you're losing that property or, or you're, you're, you're taking a massive hit and you go, oh, being a landlord doesn't work for me. So all it does is it allows people that have deep, deep pockets that can incur those, you know, negative things to own. Um, and, you know, my, my thing is like, I don't, I, you know, I have opinions on all this stuff, but my opinions don't matter. I have to follow whatever the rules are. And so I just have to look and say, where is investing going to work for me and my family and my partners? And, you know, it drives, it drives people, it drives good landlords out of places where maybe they, they need them. Exactly. You know, I was telling my friend on the phone this, cause I was going up to sign papers on another single family rental here. I said, they're trying to pass this good cause eviction. Have you ever heard of good cause eviction? Have you ever heard no. of so basically in New York, I don't think it's going to go through, but the state is trying to pass a law that basically doesn't allow landlords to evict tenants except for if they don't pay. So let's say they're on a month to month lease mm -hmm. and you know they're paying. You can't evict that tenant no matter what. They have to stay. They're entitled to stay. And what I told the guy, I said, I don't think it's going to pass, number one. And if it does pass, all it's going to do is it's going to make it so hard and, and difficult for tenants to get housing because the landlords are going to be really picky about their tenants. Yep. It's ultimately going to hurt the person they're trying to help. Right. So I said, it's really not a good, you know, long-term strategy and people just don't realize that. No, they don't. And you know, a lot of this stuff, it, it sounds good when you're like drawing up the rule, yeah. but if you just kind of listen to the people that are on the other side of that rule, and I think that's the part where that doesn't, that may not happen as much as it should. It's just kind of like, okay, let's put something in place we think is going to work. And, you know, there's, unfortunately in our business, there's like a, I don't know if stigma is the right word, but like greedy developer, greedy, like business Whipper. owner. Yeah. And it, I think it's worse in real estate for whatever reason. And so I think people just, you know, don't understand. And, you know, we're, we're going through it. There was a vote in Boston about, you know, rent control. And again, mm. you know, what does that do? Well, it makes me really happy that I've started to go outside of Boston, right? So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. all of that stuff, um, you know, I, again, I get what they're trying to do. I think there's a lot of other ways to do it, but I just have to play within whatever the rules are that are set forth in the communities that I'm going to do business in. Totally. So you're you're going to New Hampshire, which is still like local to your your major market. What are you on the North Shore? You live in the North Shore up there? Yeah, I'm I'm sitting right now maybe 10 miles north of Boston and then to get to New Hampshire from here like the the, the very you know bottom might take me 35 minutes. So and the other thing, you know, specific to my ge geography is like it's easier to go north than to go through Boston. So Yeah, it's true. In some ways it's not even more inconvenient. Like sometimes just getting into Boston can actually be worse than going to New Hampshire. So yeah, I mean, and the numbers make sense and it just has been, you know, better for us and, you know, everybody that we work with. Totally. I mean, you, yeah, it takes you, it's going to take you shorter to get to New Hampshire than Plymouth. I used to live in Plymouth. like Okay. Right and I was like, to get to Boston, it was a pain in the ass. You had to take that three road. And I was like, this is, it's just a lot of traffic. So yeah. I know the area. Yeah, it's, it's nice up there. So before we get into your business uh, on the flipping end and the changes you've made and the market shift. You did invest out of state, like not anywhere near the Boston area in Jacksonville. You still have properties there. So just what is your honest opinion and feedback from that? Because a lot of people who live where you and I live, they just are like, oh, I want to own rentals in Oklahoma and get these 2% mm -hmm. deals. And I'm like, that sounds good, but it's probably not really reality. So what's your experience doing that stuff? Yeah. So so my experience, and this is kind of just forgetting about even the rental component, and this is something that like, you know, say as, you know, say as I uh, do as I say, not as I do type of thing where, you know, focus is so important in business and being focused on, you know, what you can kind of win a gold medal at, like what you can be the absolute best at. And it's really easy to say, okay, like I could do five or 10 things, especially like if you're talented and you have a lot of energy and, and whatnot. So Going back maybe about five years, um, we have a friend who who lives in Jacksonville. He's a flipper, and 
he was telling us about the prices of of what you know he was selling and the rents and we said geez why not you know start to collect some of these uh, because at the time they were selling for 80 to a hundred thousand dollars and you know getting like a thousand dollars a month in rent oh, man that's pretty yeah good. it is i mean it well it, it's gotten worse it ha it's not as profitable as it used to be More but at the time now, at least yeah yeah and at the time it sounded you know good and and whatnot and so we've accumulated maybe like 20 to 25 of those over the course of a five-year period single families and or small multis all single families i don't even know if there's a ton of multis in jacksonville like it's a very uh a lot obviously there's there's some diversity there but most of the properties when you drive around they're just like these you know 900 One to, floor concrete yeah. block yeah they're just very simple properties and um you know, I think Jacksonville is a good market. That's why I went there. I, I like it. I, I I can't tell you I have a lot of problems with it, but I also can't tell you I've had a lot of profit from it either. Um, you know, it's it's one of these things that like, I think we got lucky that we had the right operator, the right situation, bought at the right time. <clears throat> but then I just compare that to how we put that energy into our own market. What would the results have been? And I, I, it's just very clear that we would have a much better result where we were at. And there's, there's a lot of things about like, especially if you're on the coast or in New York or in these like high priced areas where things you don't think about in these like smaller kind of communities with small prices, like small prices, they, sometimes they can sound good. You can say, wow, I can buy a single family for a hundred thousand dollars. You can get a thousand dollars in rent you kind of like pencil it, pencil it out, it cash flows and it sounds good. But then there are negatives that kind of come along with that, that I think that maybe it's easy to forget about. Like one simple thing is, you know, appreciation and how powerful appreciation is. Not that Jacksonville hasn't appreciated, but you're starting with a base of $100,000. Yeah. So five years later, when you've got 40% appreciation, you're up $40,000. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not complaining about that, but you start in Greater Boston maybe with an asset that started at you know six hundred thousand dollars. Now you're up two hundred and forty thousand dollars. Exactly. And so the yeah. other thing that I think is kind of easy to forget, and sometimes like you read books and they tell you like rules and they they make sense, but then in reality, again, maybe it doesn't make as much much sense as as it might say. So you might read like a book like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it'll say, never go negative cash flow, or it has to cash flow on day one. And again, that makes sense on paper. But let's just say that you are negative $50 a month in Boston and plus $100 a month in Jacksonville. You go, okay, well, Jacksonville cash flows, Boston doesn't. Well, within a two or three year period, you might be up in Boston by 500 and you might be up by 75 in Jacksonville. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I, it goes back to like, your kind of like, you know, your original question. And I think what you were trying to get at is like, I believe that you can have the most impact and make the most money in your own backyard for yeah. so many reasons. It's easier to get deals. It's easier to manage the properties you know the streets, you know the neighborhoods, you know the rules, you know the legislation. And it's really hard to 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 just, you know, point out on a map like, hey, this area seems to pencil out. Um, and then, you know, do as well because you lose a lot of the competitive advantage that you have by being local. So what I would say to anybody who's in one of these coasts or like is having a hard time cash flowing is like, I would try to figure out a way to make it work in your market. And I bet overall, you know, for most people, they would end up doing much better. Yeah. I mean, even in Southern California, I mean, you know, Phil Green, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they have rentals. They're built, you know, the thing in California, like a lot of the West Coast people is you can, it's very favorable for builders. So you can build these like detached houses on the same lot and, and you can build these ADUs. It's very like common out there. So like you can buy these properties and then if you have the ADU rented for 2,500 a month and then the front house rented for like, you can make the numbers work, right? So there's always a way to do it in your market. You just got to get creative and understand that, that I like how you made that point. Like the appreciation in some of these markets is real stuff. Like that, that really helps move the needle. You can 1031 and do all these other things. So what do they say? The grass is not always greener, right? 
No, I don't. I, I think that when I talk to people, I've talked to so many people in my career, you know, when it comes to real estate investing across the country, because I like to talk to people in different markets. And I think when you really look at it, every market has pros and cons, but the people who are good operators in every market make a ton of money. Every. So it's like, you know, it's like um, going to another market and not being a great operator, like the market isn't going to carry you oh. and it's the operations that's going to carry you. hundred percent. Yeah. I, that's such good advice because I know a lot of people, they just get like, especially in New York, they get frustrated with the attorneys and everything. And I'm like, listen, you can go to another state and do deals without an attorney, but you're going to run into the same skill set issues you have right? It's yep. not going to just get fixed. And they're like, Oh, that's true. You know, and the spreads are bigger usually in the Northeast and the Southern California. So anyway, on top, on that note, I guess with spread. So Tom, you got a big flipping business. You guys are like the biggest home buyer in the greater Boston area. So, you know, with a business that big, with a market shift that happened last year, you know what, I don't really know the Boston area. Like what was, what happened in the Boston area? Cause at least down in like New York, Long Island, like it really wasn't as bad. I mean, it went down, but it wasn't like Phoenix or anything like that. So I'm, I'm sure your market is might be similar to our market. Yeah, there was a, you know, even within our market, there were a lot of different things that happened. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't just one thing. And I posted a chart the other day on my in my Facebook group about how there's really this bifurcation of the entire United States right now, where there is markets that are doing really well, and some that are doing bad. And that typically doesn't happen. Typically, not that it all goes together, but, you know, it's it's rare to see like uh, a market being up 5% and a market being down 7% in the United States at the same time. And that's what's going on. But even within my own market, there have been bifurcation. Um, and and really, um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, but COVID definitely kind of started it. And so one thing that really kind of dinged us and that, you know, we just couldn't anticipate and it's something that wasn't great for us, but I, I don't know that we would have ever been able to predict this is that when when COVID happened, um, two things happened. Inflation went up really high, which was maybe somewhat predictable. Um, and then the other thing that happened is people didn't want to live in the cities, right in the city as much. So we we do um, you know things called condo conversions where we take old multifamily buildings and we turn them into high-end condos and we had quite a few of those going. They had been a pretty profitable type of deal for us in the past. And when COVID hit, um, we couldn't do work on them for a while. So our holding costs went way up. Then construction costs went way up. And then people didn't want to live in the city as much. So those properties sat for longer. So it was kind of like a triple whammy in that specific type of, of asset. Now, Outside of that, the market in general in the greater Boston area is very tight because of the fact that there's really no new construction even possible. Yeah. So what we've what we kind of have in our market, and again, this is where every market is a little different, but what we have in our market is we have a situation where it's actually just bad to rent or own right now. Like there's no great answer for anybody that's looking to find an apartment or to buy something because um, rental inventory is super tight. Buying inventory is super tight. This, the one, the next thing I'm going to say is a national thing, which is that sellers aren't selling right now because they have three, oh. three and a half percent interest rates. That is across the country because the interest rates are national. Yeah. So we have this market where buyer demand is a lot weaker than it was a year ago yet there's less homes available for sale. So in our market right now, and I've been like fighting, I've literally been fighting with uh, my wife actually like, you know, gets mad at me. I've been fighting with people on Twitter for probably the last month. I saw that um, post you made. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So like what's happening is, um, and this is, this is just the difference between somebody who's an insider or somebody who's just like reading the news is you have all these people seeing like a year over year decline in Boston because there has been a year over year decline, but what they're not seeing is the pendings that are currently under contract, which I have a ton of those. So we're actually like up quite a bit from last year, but year to year we're down because the, the pendings really started the market for us. And this was a national thing when rates went from like three to 7%.
fires were just like, whoa. Done. I, yeah. I don't know what's going on. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to stop. So there was a big pause from like, I don't know, July to maybe December. And then what ended up happening, like a lot of prices that go up is people adjust to them. Like when gas is two bucks a gallon, then it goes to four. People go, oh my God, gas is so high. Then gas goes down to 350. People go, wow, gas is gas is cheap. It's it's really kind of human psychology is is really interesting. So once basically January of this year, 2023 hit, buyers just accepted that rates were six, six and a half, six point seven five. And they're looking around going, there's no inventory. So, you know, getting back to the, you know, arguments I've been having with people is I've been saying that saying to a lot of people that aren't in the market. Like, you know, don't take what's on, you know, CNBC at face value because that's old data. Um, you're going to be surprised at what the sales show in New England for March, April, May, and June. Because this year is already like setting stone. Like the people who are going to put their house on the market are starting to drip it. The buyer demand has already kind of shown itself. So for the most part, unless we get some sort of like crazy shift in the market which like a crazy like economic thing which is possible i think we're going to be up in boston you know year over year yeah no i mean it's you said the key thing there a few times there's there's a lack of inventory and now the buyers have accepted that the rates are what they are and they're just adjusting their numbers maybe some people who were going to buy at the low rates are out of the market now but the some new people might be in and it's funny because your market is obviously not the same as the New York metro area, like tri tri state or whatever, um, but like we're still putting fix and flips on the market, and I actually did this on the West Coast too. We're having ten plus offers on properties that are priced yeah. in a bad market. You know what I mean? So like, it's it's interesting to see how how that plays out because a lot. Of, I remember like when the market shifted, I had a fix and flip in San Diego, and it was a condo, and I was like, all right, the rates are going up. Hopefully, this sells, and it sold pretty quickly. And then a couple months later, that condo that I sold, I think I sold it in May. If I sold that in July or August, I would have been down, like the, the sale price would have been at least 30 grand less. Um, but now it's back up a little bit. So it's just weird to see how, you know, really, I think everyone was scared, including myself in, you know, last summer. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people were pausing. I was kind of a little, I was wholesaling a lot more stuff, you know, because I didn't really know what to do, but it was harder to wholesale because the buyers were more picky. So regarding your business now with, the volume that you do, how much of your transactional business consists of wholesale assignments versus take down and either do a wholesale or fix it up and, and resell it? Because your market is pretty expensive. Yeah, we're not, I'm not a big advocate of wholesaling. Um, well, I should say assigning. I'm not yeah. a big advocate of, of assigning yeah. deals. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. And this is just a personal interesting. Yeah, I want to hear this. I know most people are, you know, do well with it and you can do well with it. Um, what I've found is that it's a lot of hassle. Yes. It's, it's a lot of hassle. And what, what turns me off about doing it is you put a property out there, everybody wants it, you get an offer, then somebody goes back and forth and it's worse than the retail market. Like retail buyers... <laughs> They want a property, they're going all in, they're going to do it. Um, yes, of course, they back out from time to time. But like, I, I'm just the type of person who if I tell you I'm going to do something, I tell you I'm going to pay 180 for your wholesale deal, like I'm paying 180 unless like something, you know, crazy happens. Yeah. So it's it's the the inherent like crazy haggling on the assignment deals. Yeah, that drives me bananas. And so for me, it's actually easier for me to take the thing down, flip it. Like I have a good process in place to take it down and just to do the deal. And we've always been more profitable doing that too. Um, it's not that we won't ever assign a deal. We will from time to time if it's a deal we don't like or whatever. But that whole process of like blasting it out and having a seller, you know, trying to get them on board with the fact oh, that tough. you do it. It's tough, man. It's yeah. tough. It's very, it's very challenging. Especially in our market, in the Northeast, because the sellers are more skeptical and the attorneys are involved. So it's even harder. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, 
you know, you're juggling like 10 balls at the same time, hoping one doesn't fall. And if one falls, you make no money. So couldn't agree more. Um, so I just don't like it. Um, and, and I get, and I, like I said, I know so many people who do well with it. I just know for me and my business, like we've got a pretty good machine to get from point A to point B. And we're good at evaluating what deals are going to be profitable. We always do quick turn deals. Like we always, we, we won't do a deal. that's going to be a year long renovation. We're typically in and out of stuff for two to four or five months. And that's what we look for. We'll wholesale the really you know, crazy bad properties, stuff like that. That's the type of yeah. stuff we will wholesale. Um, I don't even really look at us necessarily as like renovators, even though we do renovate properties. We're just basically, you know, getting them for a good price. We try to get them, we, we operate in markets where if you put kind of a vanilla product out there, people are going to be okay with it. We don't do anything high end. I don't like the high end market. I like to put a property on the market in a town that sells fast. And I like to put it at a price that's going to attract a ton of people so that there's a million people kind of fighting over it. And then, you know, like getting and get out. Um, so, you know, that's what we've, we have, we've definitely been better about focusing on that. Like going back four or five or six years, we would take on a lot of different types of projects. And we've learned the hard way that, you know, we're looking to make a property it's maybe like a three or four out of 10 condition to a seven out of 10 condition. Yeah. And that's, that's our sweet spot. That's what we do well. And, you know, we'll do a hundred of those a year on average. Um, and we do pretty well with it for the most part. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So when it comes to the work, like I, I kind of look at like how much, what's the least amount I can put in like within reason sure. to make it a decent product, but it doesn't have to be like you said, like this, beautiful, glamorous, like almost like new construction rehab. So like, are you guys just going in, like doing a lot of paint carpets, fixing the mechanicals, maybe putting some countertops down, something that's like aesthetically pleasing, but you're not necessarily, you know, doing adding square footage and doing all that kind of crazy shit. And then it gets all. Oh yeah. We will never, we'll never add yeah. square footage. Like that's like, that's the ultimate kind of like, let's, you know, do a project for a year type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's exactly it's exactly what you said it's all the stuff that you said we we obviously like we need these things to be financeable so yes. whatever it takes to get them financeable financeable mechanically um and then yeah we we're not gonna we usually don't just toss on a house on the market that needs a ton of work we're usually we're making it so that it's an affordable product for somebody and again, it's in a price point where people are going to be fighting over it. And that's the type of deal that we like to do because we know that, that there's such a big volume of buyers in that pool. And 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 I get like a lot of people have different you know viewpoints on this stuff. And some people wouldn't want to do the types of deals we do or go into the cities we go into and they want to do, you know, really nice remodeling and that's all good and well, but it's just never worked for us. And we've never done well with that. Those are the deals we've lost money on. Yep. When you deviate from the normal, I've been there, man. Yeah. It's not fun. Cause in the you're almost like looking back, like, man, I, I shouldn't have done that deal to begin with. And yep. it was outside of my box. Like I had this happen on a mixed use property. I didn't know what I was doing. I got into this deal. It was really good on paper. It was built in 1890 or no, 1900, same shit and uh, lost some money on it. And it was a total hassle. And I'm like, I should, I should have wholesaled this off to somebody. Cause I knew someone would have bought it right away. And I was like, Oh no, it's a smoking deal. I'm just going to do it myself and created a bunch of unnecessary stress. Right. So yeah, and that's why, like, oh, that's why like all these like iBuyers, like they they can never make money. It's not possible for them to make money because you have to, this is not a business where you can just buy like a whole range of different things. Like you really need to be good. It's not, it's not a business where you can be like a robot and do it, especially in the Northeast. Oh. Um, it, you just, you just have to be good. You have to know what you're doing. You need to get educated. You need to get experience, you know, work with people that know what the heck they're doing and, and uh, all that stuff. And the, the iBuyers, they'll never make money. It's why they get crushed. And, you know, um, even like, you know, we're talking about like going out of state and buying properties. It's why those people don't usually do that well, smoked, dude. Yeah. Are you having the iBuyers? Like, I, there's iBuyers in like the New York City suburbs right now, which is weird. Um, we've lost a few deals to them, unfortunately. Are they up in the yep. Boston area too? So it's funny, like Redfin came in, then they oh, exited. <laughs> Redfin came in, then they exited. And then 
I, I think somebody told me the other day that Open Door was here. Yes. And I'm just, I'm just like, I'm just like, this is, I, I, it couldn't be a worse idea for them. I mean, I don't even, I legitimately don't understand how they think they could make money because they're overpaying for properties in markets that they don't know. And then they have to resell them in a market. Like, yes, I'm telling you right now that Boston is probably going up right now, but it's not going up enough to, to correct mistakes. Like it's only going up enough so that if you make the right decisions, you'll make a modest profit, but it's not going to carry you. Like we're, the one thing I do know is that we're not going to get like 10% appreciation this year. Like I, I know that, like when I'm talking about prices going up, I'm talking like one, two, 3% up enough so that the people who are saying, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs on Twitter that the market's crashing will be wrong, but not high enough so that, you know, you know, it, it, it's going to be make like up another... for the sloppy work you did. You're not going to no. get bailed out this market. All right. No. Yeah, no. And that's, that's what happened in San Diego the last three years is there was a lot of people like I have a friend. He pretty, yeah, I wouldn't say he over, he bought this deal from a wholesaler. He made 500 grand on it, which is crazy in like a neighborhood. That's like 20 minutes from where I have the San Diego condo made 500 grand on this deal. And if he bought that deal today, he would have probably lost 150. Yep. They appreciate it. And that's, that's in San Diego, which is not even like LA prices. And I was like, Holy smokes. Like, it's just crazy. But that market was like, you know, interest rates are two and a half percent. Like you can't really lose. You know what I mean? No. And and that's why like, I, I saw a post the other day by somebody on, on Twitter, basically saying like, wouldn't it be great for just kind of like a boring old real estate market. And I couldn't have kind of like, liked that comment enough because I, I really, I, I don't love the fluctuations really for anybody. I don't like them for investors. I don't like them for home buyers. Like I, I wish the whole COVID thing never happened because we were getting to the point in 2019 where prices were definitely leveling off. You could feel it. And, um, and then they just went gangbusters again and it, it doesn't help. any. I don't, I don't know. It does, I don't think it helps anybody really for that type of stuff to happen. Like I, the real estate market used to be this thing where, it would go up like two or 3% a year. And that was just kind of the thing going like way back. I'm talking. Um, and, and now it's just, it's, it's almost, it's not the stock market. It can't be the stock market because of how the houses are traded, but there's, there's more fluctuation than I think that there should be because of all of these different, like, you know, interest rate manipulation and just craziness that I, I wish it doesn't serve really buyers or sellers or, you know, investors for that to happen. I don't think. Yeah. And it just makes it, it just, it just throws more things off, right? Like with COVID when the market was, you know, when there was 35 offers a house at two and a half percent interest rate, like, yeah, yeah. those are making money, but it's like now these buyers, it's just, yeah, it just doesn't make it easier. I agree with you, man. That's interesting. Yeah. We'll see where things go. Uh, definitely uh, got to keep following you on Twitter. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. So a couple more things before we wrap up. Before we get into how people can get in touch with you and what you have going with your Facebook group, what are your, like the market, like the last time we spoke, we covered a little bit of marketing. What is your top three performing marketing channels right now to get your deals? And then we'll start to wrap the show up. Yeah. You know, I don't think that they've ever really changed, even though I've tried to change them over the years. It's kind of like a funny like thing. Me. Like, well, I'm always like, there's got to be something else out there that's going to work. And it never is. Um, so for me, it's always been mailers have always been the best. That's right. And the reason they've always been the best is because you can actually target the houses you want to buy, the properties you want to buy. Um, you still have that easy... mailing machine in your office? No, I actually got rid of it and I started <laughs> to out, outsource everything just to make it easier to manage. But yeah, yeah, I used to have that that mailing room. But um, but yeah, mailers I like the best. Um, agent referrals. I mean, I have the brokerage. I think agent referrals are always good because agents come across deals. It doesn't cost them any money. And there's a lot of trust when we go into a property. Um, I like pay-per-click. Uh, okay. Pay-per-click has always been, you know, good for me. People going online saying, sell my house fast. SEO to a much smaller extent. Like my, my site will rank high. You know, if you put in, we buy houses, Boston and stuff like that, we'll rank high. The volume isn't super high. Like I'm, that wouldn't really carry me at all. Um, we did, we did, since the last time we talked, we did a big TV campaign. It went okay. I mean, we were spending, you know, 50 grand a month on TV. I'm going to ballpark that we broke even. It was not 
it was good for name recognition. I did cut it. We did cut when when uh, all the stuff started to pause. We did go into 2023 going, all right, like let's cut our budget down and let's let's be not as lean as we can, but let's be a little bit more strategic. Like if we think a marketing channel is breaking even, then like let's not like even try it, you know. So so those are the ones that that have always worked for me. Um, I know people do different things. I know some people call and text and um, stuff like that. Those methods for me were just too intensive. Like my business isn't completely passive, but we've built a nice business that is fairly passive. Um, it, it doesn't require a ton of my time, effort, and energy every day to run the flip business. Um, and that's that goes into like what you know we talked about with why don't I assign or wholesale? Like we have a nice steady business between the brokerage and the flipping to throw off the active income. And what I'm really focused on, like we, you know, we were talking about in the intro is what you know you said a lot of people forget about. And frankly, it's something I haven't been as focused on as I should have, which is really that when it's all said and done, you know, and I'm on, you know, I'm on my deathbed, I can guarantee I'm not gonna say I wish I flipped three more houses, but I can guarantee I'm gonna say I wish I bought three more apartment deals, right? Like so so that's what I'm focused on, you know, raising money for those, finding them, giving opportunities to other people to invest in our deals and stuff like that. And and that's really, you know, probably the biggest piece of advice that I can give to any one of your listeners is like, especially if you're like me and you grew up with no money, it's really great to get like this active income and it gives you that rush and it's addicting and you want to grow and, and everything. But like when you look at it, if you look at it in a one-year window, you go, let's do more active income. But when you look at it in a 10-year window, it's like, I really wish I bought more buildings. I wish I did more passive stuff. So to me, the best way to do it is like make the active income that you need and like focus on the, the passive income for everything else. Because that's the stuff that it works when you're, when, everybody knows this, but like it's harder to do in reality. Like that, the passive income works when you're not working, right? So, Every day and all day. And that's yeah. what builds the net worth up. And people don't realize like, yeah, making 50 grand right now is a lot of money. You can use that money to do whatever you want. But when you have a, like, let's say you have an apartment building with $4 million of equity, like that's right on your balance sheet. And then that cash flow comes in, whether you want to flip a house or not. And it's, it's that delayed gratification. Like I'm keeping a house right now, which is a little dweeby single family compared to your apartment building, but I'm going to keep that property, forfeit a $70,000 profit to keep it yep. as rental and burr. But I know long term that's the right decision, right? And 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 those are the hard decisions that like in the moment it's always going to be get the quick money and everything like that. And you just have to have that like I, you don't have to do this. I mean, I I just think for the long haul, you know what everybody gets into real estate for. Like we all got into real estate investing to improve our lives. And the first thought we had was not to be active. The first thought we had or we learned about what hooked us was we're going to own assets and be passive. That's what hooked us. We didn't get hooked on, on the, the transactional. So you just have to, I think you just have to like always have that in the back of your head. Like, yeah, I could make a hit today, but this one hit today will turn into like five hits later. And that's, that's like, it's discipline, but it's also like reminding yourself like that, that this is what you're doing it for. You're not doing it to get 70K to put in your bank account just to look at it, right? Even though that's going to feel better. Um, it's to get the $400,000 of appreciation over the course of a 15-year period, plus, you know, depreciation, plus, it, you know, passive income and everything else. Totally, man. Especially tax-wise, too. You start making some money, you get some big tax bills. You need rentals or else you're going to get smoked. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many, like, yeah. reasons um, to, to, to just, you know, it's hard because we all need active income to live. But again, just keeping that mindset like, okay, but I'm not doing it so that, you know, I can make an extra 50K this year. I'm doing it so that I can make an extra, you know, $5 million 10 years from now. 100%. Very well said, Tom. Now tell us a little bit about your Facebook group, what it's about, and then how people can get involved in that if they do so choose. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've, I've been a coach and I started coaching in 2017. I started coaching in 2017 
for profit. And um, another kind of mistake, you know, that I made, I could tell you a lot of stories about, you know, the coaching world, the coaching business, how people make money doing it and stuff like that. But um, I realized that like doing individual coaching and selling programs like wasn't what I wanted. Um, and so what I what I did instead is I give away all my coaching for free and I do everything on a group basis. Right. The people that are going to take action don't need me to hold their hand. And That's so like, true, bro. That's so true. Yeah, it is right. So, so, so what I what I decided to do because I after doing a lot of coaching, I realized what I don't like about coaching are the people that are going to say, "Hey, can you take an hour of your time so that I'm not going to do anything?" And that oh, was the part I call of, those people assholes. <laughs> yeah, and and those and there's nothing wrong with those people. They're nice people, but for myself. I like working with motivated people and I like being strategic about how I spend my time. So I would rather teach, you know, I have 11,000 people in my Facebook group. I'd rather teach 11,000 people for free, knowing it's only going to take an hour of my week every single week and host a podcast than have a hundred people pay me 50 K for my coaching program. But then I've got to, you know, sit down with them and, yeah. you know, maybe they'll do it. Maybe they won't. I don't know. Um, so I, I created the, the Facebook group that people can join for free at www.agentinvestor.com. When you join the group, there's just a, you know, a few things that will help you. First of all, I do a live stream every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Um, I cover different investing topics every single week. I ask people in the group what they need help with. And, um, overall, like what I'm teaching is what I'm doing. And it's really just the systems in my business that have allowed me to do the stuff that I mentioned, you know, the build a few hundred unit rental property portfolio, the 350 person brokerage, the, you know, 1200 flips. And it's all the stuff. Like if you listen to my live streams, you show up, you can ask questions live. And, um, you know, again, like if you're a go-getter and you're serious about investing in real estate, you can get all that stuff for free. But then the other thing that I do also for free is I host uh, two day events. I have one coming for up free. for free, right? Dude, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, people can, people can sign up for those at www.agentinvestorevent.com. And, you know, I'll just put it out there. Like I do make money on them. I don't do it through coaching though. Um, I help people, I coach people. Um, but I, I do it by raising capital for my deals and I, I do it by, by, by building out my brokerage. So, yeah. Out of the, you know, I usually get a couple hundred people like at every event and most of them will just come and they'll, they'll use the information and I'll, I won't make any money off of them. And that's, I'm totally fine with that. Um, but my big thing, like I said, is just like, I like teaching. I like training. I like putting people in the Facebook group, giving them stuff for free and then connecting with the people that are like taking action. So again, people can, can go to www.agentinvestor.com and join the group and it's free and you get the training. And I, I post about in there when our events are, and I post about the podcast and things like that. So um, definitely a win-win for me. Like I'm doing it cause I like doing it, but I also, you know, it, it does help me grow my business. Totally. And Tom, when is your next event? If people are listening to this? Yeah. April 12th and April 13th. So, um, you know, it's going to be probably, probably tight for a lot of people, but um, you know, if you can make it, especially if you're, if you're local, I can guarantee that you're going to, you're going to leave being, having a lot more clarity and knowing specifically like what you should be working on. Like one thing we always focus on in our events and just in general, um, we follow the EOS entrepreneurial operating system um, methodology, which basically says like, you need to figure out what your top three to six priorities are for the quarter. And you've got to do them in order. So if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to want to do 500 things, right? And if I turn around my screen, you'd see all the 500 things that I want to do today. But we don't have the time to do that. And we have to get really disciplined about like, what are what are the three to six things that are going to move the needle the most in my business? And we help people at the events figure that out. And then if you just do that, you know, your business, you know, you put a brick down every single day. Yeah, at the beginning, you're going to be like looking down like, hey, these are just a bunch of bricks. But one day you're going to have a really nice house and you'll be like, oh, how did I get there? And it's just by building those bricks and getting educated. 
I love it, Tom. That was a really fun podcast. I'm glad we got to do that. I could do this for three hours. So <laughs> listen, we'll make sure the link to the Facebook group is in there. Definitely, if the listeners, they got to follow you, man. You got some great stuff. I mean, this guy, Tom, has built a serious business and it's excited to see where he'll be in the future. So Tom, buddy, really Thank appreciate you. your time. This was, really, I, I don't say this on every interview, but this was one of my favorite ones I've done because it's really Thank informative you. and you know, you're an easy guy to talk to. So I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Hey, what's going on? This is Greg Hellbeck here. And if you're listening to this, odds are you are a real estate investor. And a big question that I always get asked is, Greg, how do you get your deals? So I have the answer to that question. The main way that I get deals, and it's been this way for years, is through direct mail marketing. Now, direct mail marketing is certainly not easy, but if you have direct mail dialed in the right way, it is profitable month after month after month after month. So I'm actually going to give you a free guide, which is my top five direct mail mistakes. So if you want to check out my guide absolutely for free, go to directmailclass.com, put in your name and email, and you will get my guide, which is my top five fatal direct mail mistakes. If you just use that guide alone, it will make you a much better direct mail marketer. So if you want to learn how to optimize and become very successful finding deals through direct mail marketing for your real estate investment company, go to directmailclass.com and get my free guide. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Real Estate Investing Fast Track. I hope you got a lot of value from this specific episode. And there are a few takeaways that you're able to gather from this to implement in your business so you can be a more successful real estate investor. So if you did get value from the show, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes, it would really mean a lot to me. That's how we keep growing the show and getting great guests is because people see the reviews. They see that we have a high quality show and they want to contribute as a guest. So that would be great. Also, if you got value, if you could share the show on social media, that would be great because that is how people see this besides the reviews. So once again, if you did get value, if you could do me a favor and leave me a review on iTunes and share the show on social media, it would really mean a lot to me and I'll see you on the next episode.